21 CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassick. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to my Run Your Life podcast series. Um, I've got a person um, that I'm interviewing today, my guest, uh, Orlando Bowen from Toronto. I'm really happy to have him on the show. Um, Orlando and I are connected through um, actually a very, very good friend of mine who I know is a good friend of Orlando's as well. His name is Chuck Crabb. Chuck is the godfather of my son. And we played football together in, in university. Um, so Chuck essentially brought, brought us together. So uh, I'm not going to tell you too much about Orlando because you're going to figure it all out and learn about him during the, the podcast today. But I'm just going to have Orlando introduce himself and then we'll begin our discussion. So go ahead, Orlando. Coach Andy, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to be able to spend this time. My name is Orlando Bowen. I am the founder and executive director of a youth leadership charity called One Voice, One Team. We, uh, we empower uh, young people to find and use their passions, their talents, and their interests to make a difference in someone else's life. And, uh, you know, been, I was a former, I am a former professional uh, football player. I played in the Canadian Football League with the Toronto Argonauts, Hamilton Tiger Cats. More importantly, I am a father of three amazing young men, ages 12, 11, and 9, and a husband to one beautiful, uh, incomparable young lady named Sky. Yeah, and I've had a chance to meet uh, your whole family. Um, it's amazing to see how big the boys are now. Cause I think we've been, we've been connected now, I think about three or four years. So right. I've, I've seen kind of the boys grow up, um, on your family photos on, on Facebook and stuff. So time yeah. flies. Um, so you, you talk about your work with youth and that's uh, just to give you some background. Um, this podcast is for mainly for educators, but there are people outside education listening to this. And, um, you know, my work is in physical education, but my work has shifted to general education and what it means to be an educator and um, the, the value that we can bring educators, the value that they can bring to young people's lives. And we talked pre-show about the idea of the core values that you instill upon people in, in the workshops that you run through One Voice, One Team. Um, are very applicable in the business world as as well. So can can you kind of um, sum up uh, kind of the the main core values that you emphasize and and teach in one voice one team? Um, can you just talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So the the principles that we espouse uh, probably come through most powerfully in our flagship leadership development program called the SWOLE program, S-W-O-L-E. And it's an acronym. The S stands for self-respect. That serves as the foundation. The W stands for work hard or or having a great work ethic because nothing of value comes without. Uh, The O stands for overcoming adversity. So overcoming obstacles, challenges, or, or, or things that may uh, get in the way of you pursuing your goals and dreams. 
The L stands for leading by example, so not just talking about making a difference, but actually going out there and doing it. And the E stands for excellence. So we talk about cultivating excellence, celebrating excellence at every opportunity. Um, those are the principles that, that we espouse. But I think there's some foundational beliefs and uh, some f- foundational um, goals that we have. So from a belief perspective, uh, we believe that every young person has, uh, every person has unique talents, life experiences, and gifts that they can use to contribute to make a difference in this world. Um, we firmly believe that. And I think that comes through when we're engaging individuals. Uh, another belief that, that we have is that um, in light of some of life's challenges, some people say, you know, in spite of a challenge, they're able to still come through and, and, and make a difference. We say in light of those challenges, those obstacles that we face often uniquely position us to empower, inspire, and equip others with the most important thing that I think our program brings to the table, and that's hope. A hope that tomorrow can be better than today. A hope that I could get through whatever it is that I'm, I'm faced with and, um, and, and still pursue my goals and dreams. And, and I hope that I can belong to something that's bigger than myself and have an impact that in some way, shape, or form leaves, leaves a legacy um, beyond my time here. Yeah, and um, a lot of, you know, when you describe the work that you're doing and the values that you espouse in, in your program, um, I am a, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, but um, I think Tony Robbins gets a really bad rap as that rah, rah, rah infomercial right. guy. But yep. the work that he does is amazing, you know, with with people from all walks of life. And he talks... Uh, one of his biggest things is is uh, neurolinguistic programming and the idea of the language that we use is either yes. empowering or disempowering and you just hit upon that when you said in light of the obstacles that people face i right. mean people will use certain language to define their yeah. situation that can be very disempowering so mm-hmm. i think just the wording that you use do you really focus on that wording in your in your leadership training yeah, yes, we do. And, and you know, the, the verbiage that we use is, is definitely a part of the equation, um, a large part of the equation, because sometimes it's reprogramming um, the way that we receive life. We, we always say that life is, isn't, it's not about the things that happen to you. It's about the perspective that you have uh, in terms of those things. Right, really, those things have no meaning until we give them meaning exactly. um, through our perspective. So, uh, the way that we then articulate the, those the things that are important to us is very uh, significant in terms of how we're in terms of how that shapes our perception and the emotions and, and the emotions as well, right? Absolutely, that you're dealing yes. with. And I can give you one quick example of. Um, so Tony Robbins uses the word hate and he has taken the word hate completely out of his vocabulary and will not use it. And he teaches people how to substitute words. So instead of saying hate, he will say, I prefer that. So, you know, and, and it's such a profound shift because the word hate causes you to feel something at an emotional level. 
that is very yeah. disempowering, whereas I prefer that is a very empowering way. So what you're saying really does resonate. And you describe the work that you do, um, you know, impacting youth, and you describe the um, kind of those, those values that you espouse uh, impacting youth. But what you describe perfectly um, fits into the roles and responsibilities of an educator as well. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, and some, sometimes, Andy, I feel like as, and I consider myself an educator, though I don't uh, serve in the same capacity as my wife who teaches at a high school. Um, but sometimes because of the way that things are structured, uh, take a lesson plan, for example, and you've got, you know, ways that you measure whether or not the student has learned the lesson. And, you know, you've got the rubric and you've got the level one, two, three, four, you know, here in, in Canada. And, and, and you're thinking, did they get it? And sometimes, you know, in life, in terms of the bigger lessons that, that we're trying to teach, we, we try to apply the same type of methodology to it. Like at the end of this week or at the end of this, uh, cha- this um, uh, segment or chapter or whatever it is, I need that young person to reflect back and let me know that they got what I was, I was teaching them. Now, the, the challenge with that is, is that uh, the thought processes often, well, the thought process shifts before the behavior shifts, Yeah. right? So yeah. even sometimes they may get it, it may resonate, they, they may be applying it, but perhaps not in the, um, in the interaction or when it's time to write the test, they're not demonstrating the behavior that, that you've been trying to get them to demonstrate. So my, our encouragement to educators is, is to just understand the significance of their role in shaping the lives and possibilities often for these young people and not to be discouraged when they don't necessarily show like they don't necessarily show that they get it. Yeah. Um, because sometimes that, that stuff is working behind the scenes and then almost, almost without fail, all the young people that have been in our programming, um, and we engage over 20,000 young people every year. When we ask them about someone who has been transformative in their lives in terms of shifting their thoughts or ideas about what's possible for them, 90% of them say an educator, a teacher, a coach, a principal, a vice principal, uh, help do that for them. So I just want to, I know sometimes um, as educators, you're kind of in a silo and you're doing your thing and and you don't necessarily see the impact or the fruits of your labor. But I just, you know, again, I want to share how much I love educators and, and the role that they play and to be encouraging in terms of you may not see it, but a lot of those young people talk about you as an educator and how much you poured into them. Yeah, definitely. And what you're describing right there in the assessment thing that you just talked about is the idea. And there's a profound shift in education right now. Not all educators are embracing it. But the idea of what you were describing is like that, that summative assessment task that at the end yeah. of the unit, you've got to show your knowledge and it's the final product. And teachers get so caught up with that summative assessment task and push students towards that summative assessment task and that product, uh, kind of that product is everything type of focus that they negate the power of the process. And that's the formative assessment. So now what's happening in education is there's a strong movement to, 
to um, better work on the formative assessments that drive learning throughout the unit, which is the process of learning and backing off the summative assessment. You know, so it's like the, the journey of life is formative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the day-to-day living and day-to-day learning, and you don't need that end product. It's just a continual process of learning. I, I love that. Uh, you know, there's something that uh, is very powerful about leveraging formative assessments because I'm going to, you know, think of a, a sports team, for example. All the championship teams, when they when they finally get to the point where they're able to lift that, you know, cup or whatever that gray holy grail is in, in their you know in their area of competition they they don't talk about necessarily that moment they talk about the journey yeah they talk about all the things that happen along the way in terms of getting there and and you know it, it's it, what's interesting is it's kind of you know what you become and who you become as you commit yourself to that process. That I think is you know the evolution of the individual as they embark on that journey and move through various stages of, of the journey. That is what I you know we find most fascinating because they kind of look back and realize, whoa, I, I've I've come a long way. Not just you know with respect to this rubric or this assessment but as a as a person i'm looking at all the things that 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 i now embrace and and how i now view life the journey and, of uh, life the journey of life yeah. and sp- orlando speaking of your own journey i'm just gonna so um you were born in jamaica yes hanover jamaica yeah i was born in montego bay but my oh. family lives in Han- okay. hanover so and then uh when did you how long did you live in jamaica before moving to toronto you know, I, I uh, left at a really early age. I came to Toronto when I was three years old. Okay, so you did your schooling yeah. in, in Toronto. Then in high school, you moved to Brampton, which is a suburb of Toronto, maybe yeah. 30, 30 minutes from Toronto. And that's where our friend Chuck Crab works and where you're based now. Um, yes. So you went to Bram- Brampton Centennial High School? That's correct. And then you got a full-ride scholarship to, to what university in Chicago? Northern Illinois University, home of the Huskies. Home of the Huskies. And yep. um, what what position did you play in football? I had the privilege of playing linebacker on the football field. So I, you know, my, my parents always instilled in me the notion that it, it is better to give than to receive. So I, I chose to be on the giving side, yeah. the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. And uh, that's where I, I applied my, my trade. So then you, you did uh, your four years and you played four seasons in Chicago? Yeah, I played uh, four, four seasons. I, I started as a freshman, then I got hurt in my uh, sophomore, my second year, and then ended up coming back and, and playing three more seasons. Uh, linebacker and defensive end. And um, y- you graduated, uh, I think you have two degrees, right? Yes, I, I have a bachelor's degree in, in marketing and a master's degree in the management of information technology. And then after you got your, awesome. your, after you started in the IT world and then everything shifted because you got drafted to the Toronto Argonauts. Yeah, so, you know, it was, it, what was funny um, was that I was working in IT and feeling like, I had arrived, like I had made it and, you know, making really good money. But I felt as though there was more to life and I was missing out on my ability to contribute. And um, 
you know, I had a, you know, a little a, a situation where um, I was in Jamaica at my friend's wedding and a, a little boy came up to me and asked me for a couple of dollars to buy a piece of bread. And I thought, that's it. And then I started thinking, what have I really accomplished, though? Yeah. Really? And uh, I went back to Chicago thinking, you know, like we, we've got to do something about this. And as we were putting together a mentorship program, I got a call from the Toronto Argonauts inviting me to try out for the football team. I had one question for the team. And uh, that question was, if I make this team, will I have an opportunity to give back by serving in community? And they said, absolutely. So I, I packed up and, and, and left Chicago and, and uh, went back to Toronto to try out for, for the home team. And you, and I, you, you I, played how many seasons? For Toronto. I played four seasons total, three with Toronto and one with Hamilton. And Hamilton when were you in Toronto again? What years? That was 2001, 02, and going into 03. Yeah. Um, did you know, or you didn't play with Norm Casola? Or do you know the Norm Casola legacy? He played for I, Toronto before you with a pinball. Yeah. And um, he was a teammate of, of mine at the University of Windsor, and he went on and he played, won two Grey Cups with Flutie. And oh, uh, unfortunately, cool. he, uh, he died of testicular cancer at 29 years old when he was uh, playing for the Argos. It was uh, 10 months after he won the Grey Cup. And, you know, oh. so the Toronto Argonauts has always been very near and dear, and Hamilton Tiger Cast near and dear to my heart because I had friends that played and um, right. such a special game, the Canadian game. But... Um, I guess this would be a good time to transition over to, um, I guess, I don't want to call it your defining moment, because I don't <laughs> think there is one such thing when we, we right. live our lives in the journey of yeah. life. However, yeah. you did have a very profound moment. Um, so can you give people like a real uh, depth into what you experienced and how your life changed drastically after you'd, you signed another contract with Hamilton? Yes. And then, so I was, yeah, tell us what happened. So I was playing with Hamilton. We, uh, they decided to extend my contract for another year, pick up my option. Uh, and um, so I, I was going to go out and celebrate that signing, that contract extension with a few of my teammates. So we decided to meet up at a carpool location um, just west of Toronto. So... Let me give you a little bit of background context. Going back to the to what I was sharing about coming back to Canada, the reason why I came back was to be able to serve and to make a difference. So that was the purpose. That was my why. Football was a platform that allowed me to be able to do that, to go in and talk to uh, schools. To, I was involved with uh, training police and racial sensitivity. I was going into schools and doing anti-bullying programs. I was volunteering with sick kids and big brothers, big sisters, and helping to, you know, do what we could to keep kids off the street. So football gave me that platform. Um, so I, I remained very active throughout my career uh, in terms of volunteerism and being socially involved. Uh, when I, I signed that contract extension, we decided to go out and celebrate. I got to the carpool location first. I'm waiting on my friends to arrive and I, I'm talking on the phone. I step outside my vehicle on the uh, driver's side, and I see, I see two gentlemen walking towards me. I didn't really think anything of it. I mean, it's a parking lot. People park and walk. That's par for the course. So, But one of them says to me, hey, man, what, do you, what you got? Got any drugs? 
And I said, no. And I went back to my phone call and he stopped at the rear of my vehicle. The other guy that was with him kept walking. So the gentleman that stopped says, are you sure you don't have anything? And I'm looking and I'm thinking, who asked that? Like, if someone asks you if you have the time and you say you don't have a watch, they you, they just walk on, right? So yeah. I was thinking, why would he ask me if I'm sure? And so as he asked that and I was about to answer, I looked to see where the other gentleman was and the other gentleman was standing in my blind spot. So I took a step back so I could see both of them and I said, man, what's going on? Uh to make a long story short, they were both armed guns. They grabbed me, threw me down to the ground and, and started to beat me until, you know, the skin on my head split. And and I'll, I'll never forget, Andy, just being in this situation thinking, man, my life is going to end like this. Like, it, it just it, it made absolutely no sense. Like, how could life end here and now? And in that moment where I, I could feel the you know, the blood is leaving my, my face and my head and my body. And I'm thinking, this is it. And in that moment, I thought I hadn't given, I haven't given all that I had in terms of serving, in terms of making a difference. I came back here to make a difference and I still, you know, I, I could have done more. And now all those things that I, I thought about doing, the programs I thought about running, the people I thought about reaching out to, all of that is about to die with me. And, and even a, a bigger, uh, I think, backstory for me was that, you know, our, our eldest son, so we just, we had one son at the time and, and my wife was pregnant. And, you, you know, after a football game, it's, it's, uh, you're pretty beat up, you're pretty sore. Um, and I remember getting up the morning after uh, a game and kind of hobbling, um, hobbling around the room and my wife saying, man, how, how long, how much longer are you going to put your body through that? Yeah. And I remember looking at Dante, our, our son and saying, when he could point onto that field and say, that's my dad, then I'm good. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I, one of the thoughts that came to me was like, that will never happen. There'll never be that moment where he could look out at his dad and say, that's my dad and be proud. Yeah. And that, that was heartbreaking for me. And I just thought, man, if I, if I do make it through this, you know, I, I've got to, I have to give it all. Cause I, I'm, you know, there's no point in taking this with me to the grave. So long story short, um, it turned out that these two gentlemen were two corrupt undercover police officers who happened to work for the police force that I was the spokesperson of. I was their face in the community. I did racial sensitivity training for them. I won awards from them and was at a number of their graduations as they welcomed in the new classes of officers. So when it happened, I thought, you know, somebody is going to stand up and say, we made a mistake. Someone's going to stand up and do the right thing. Yeah. Um, but that's not what happened. Instead, I was uh, a huge cover up began and and I was taken to prison, taken to jail. They, the officers went back to the scene. They planted drugs there and then said that I assaulted them when they tried to arrest me for the drugs. It was quite surreal. Um, so I ended up uh, with a concussion um, in jail for the night, bleeding, blood, all types of stuff running from my head and face. 
Um, and the next morning, you know, I had a chance after going through the bail hearing, I had a chance to, to go to the hospital and, and uh, you know, get, uh, get the, that, the physical part um, diagnosed and yeah. assessed. And, and I'll never forget the, the mayor, you know, coming in and asking me what happened. And I told her what happened. And she said, didn't they know who you are? And I said, Madam Mayor, this, this isn't supposed to happen to anybody. Yeah. And she said, you know what, you're, you're, you're right. Um, I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit. Uh, we got to about six weeks before the verdict. I got a call from the Toronto Star newspaper. The reporter on the other line says, hey, you're going to find this interesting. You know the arresting officer in your case was just arrested by the, the national police, the RCMP. Yeah. Uh, he was arrested for trafficking cocaine. They might call you soon. And uh, sure enough, um, they called me and asked, the, the Crown Attorney called me and asked if I, if I would give them the pleasure of dropping the charges. And I said, absolutely not. Yeah. I, want to be, I want a judgment. I said, I'd rather be wrongfully convicted versus having you drop the charges on the account that this officer may be um, corrupt. Yeah. I told you he was corrupt in the first place. So. Yeah. I want to. I want to. I want to be unequivocally, um, you know, released. I want to be found innocent yeah. on the merits of my case, not on some something else that he's got going on. So, um, they the next call we got w- was to show up in court because they weren't um, because I wouldn't let them drop the charge. They yeah. asked the judge. The judge said no, and he actually gave his rendered his verdict, and I was found innocent, and he stated his reasons. We filed a civil lawsuit that settled out of court. It all in all, took about five and a half years. And during that time, I mean, your career ended. Yeah, I uh, the concussion that I sustained. You know, it, one of the challenges was that being physically active was such an outlet for me. Yeah. Um, but not only could I not play the game because I couldn't even like stand without feeling like the ground was shifting beneath my feet. I couldn't even run. Because I would try to run and I would just start throwing up. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was just, it felt very um, unfair. Uh, but but in that, though, I also realized that, and this happened when I was at the hospital, I realized um, that this was this was bigger than, than me. It was bigger than me, bigger than the officers. This was about being that voice for those who don't have a voice or being a beacon of hope when the world says you should be giving up right now. You shouldn't have hope. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I just, I think my commitment to serving and giving back and making a difference, it never wavered because the incident wasn't going to change my heart that way. But I think what it cemented was my, was my commitment to, uh, to be relentless in that service and giving back. And I, you know, I wrote a letter of forgiveness to the officers um, because I wanted to express how grateful I was for the perspective that I gained through the experience. And I didn't know how else to, to do it because there was no other mechanism that would allow us, allow me to speak to them. So I wrote a letter and um, you know, that's something that I, that I shared and I released uh, to the media yeah. uh, a number of years later. And I think what you had said in your TED talk, so you did a TED talk in 2012, uh, a TEDx youth talk in uh, Mississauga, and you shared part of that letter with the, the audience. And you talked about 
um, you know, your friends and people who love you coming up to you say, yes, justice was served. And yeah. then you describe your perspective on justice, which was very powerful. And it makes you look at it. Uh, you had you had empathy for the people that, that beat you. You wrote a letter of forgiveness. And then you had empathy for the family of the officer that went to prison. So can yeah. you just share your perspective on that? Yeah. So I, you know, when folks wanted to celebrate the fact that he was convicted and going to jail, I thought that's, that's crazy. We can't celebrate that. Do you understand what his kids are going to go through? Like not having a father, what is, you know, what his spouse is going to go through, not having a husband in the house. I can't celebrate that. Right. Cause we just like, we need to focus on our energies on things that are going to allow us to evolve and move forward in greater harmony, right? Versus, you know, things that will separate us and, and paint a picture of us versus them. There is no us versus them, right? There's, there's only us. If we exist, if we're here living here on this planet, <laughs> we're all a part of the us group. It's all one um, story. Yeah. yeah. Like we may try to, to, you know, create defining lines and things that, that separate us from others. But in essence, you know, we're all in this thing together. Yeah. So, you know, I, I express my gratitude for what I learned um, through the experience and the fact that, you know, my, my connection to, to people, I think was deepened through that experience. My, my ability to empathize was deepened because when I was sitting there in the courtroom and, and hearing this gentleman who had just taken the oath to tell the truth, put his hand on the Bible to, and took the oath. And then for him to say, your honor, you know, Mr. Bowen is six foot two, 235 pounds, and he's trained to hurt people. I've never been so afraid in my life. And, and I'm and I'm looking at him, thinking, "How could you say that?" Yeah. And in that moment, you know, something really crystallized for me, and I share it with audiences: hurt people, hurt other people. You know, and I thought, what could possibly have happened to that gentleman to allow him the capacity to do that to somebody else when he knows what the truth is? And I started to. I know people do different things. I started to pray for him because I felt like. The, the, the man that was up there on the stand, he was broken. Some way, at some point, he was broken and he needed help. So, you know, I just feel like we all have a responsibility in, in creating the type of environment, the type of community, the type of world where we can ap- appreciate one another for the things that we bring to the table. Yeah. The, the t- we really don't have time to be tearing each other down, man. There's too many things that we need to deal with as a race, as a human race, um, that, uh, needs us to come together. So this, you know, any rhetoric around us and them and, and, you know, those people over there. And I just, I don't have a lot of patience for that because we need everybody. Yeah. Hence the, the, the name of our organization being one voice, one team. It's about everybody bringing something to the table, bring what you have, what you have right now is exactly exactly what the world needs um, so that we can collaborate 
and look at ways to move forward yeah. in a better way. And one of the things I've, I've um, and this is a big learning moment for me um, when I was teaching my last couple of years and I've gone into consulting, but the idea that I used to always get kids to uh, reflect on what they need to get better at. And it was just the way you're trained as a teacher to like set goals, to improve certain areas. And goal setting is great. It's fantastic. But um, I hooked up with a researcher who who really uh, started to, to show me that actually focusing on, on um, weaknesses and improving those weak areas uh, puts people at a deficit. So he is a proponent of the strength-based uh, learning and yep. taking people's strengths and uh, developing those strengths because those are the unique talents that, that people bring to the world. Yeah. So don't focus on weaknesses. It's okay to set goals and, and self-improve, but really focus on your strengths. And, and that's what you're describing. I want to play an audio clip here for you. Yeah. I, I had you listen to it pre-show. Um, and I want you to share because to me, when I hear this audio clip, I think of your work and I think of the work that I, I'm passionate about in education. Um, I want you to talk about what resonates with, your, with you uh, uh, with this audio clip and how your experience really shaped the direction you've taken with the work that you do. Okay, so I'm going to play okay. the audio clip now. More productive and better. Well, I think that's true. I think, you know, you need that great connectedness between people. But I'm also really struck, again, you know, the large number of companies I work with, and I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say, $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth makes you think that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target? You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done. That to me, like that's um, from a, a TED Radio Hour podcast. Um, and that's a, the, the theme was the meaning of work. And mm-hmm. I think what you describe is the, you know, everything you're doing is, is about meaning and purpose. So can you just share what resonates with you about that audio clip? Yeah, well, there, there are a couple of things that resonate. One is sometimes I, I think that there is um, a general belief that people are, um, you know, motivated by things by stuff right by act so extrinsically motivated yeah um by material things where where when we build teams and when we engage young people who schools have written off right that youth are involved in antisocial behaviors or gang behaviors or 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 other types of of things that may be detrimental to their long-term health and well-being it's it's really being able to understand them, understand what drives them, what is their what's the thing that that moves them, that brings their heart alive, what makes them sing, those things that are important. When we could speak to that, that is more powerful than any type of 
you know, fiscal reward yeah. or incentives that could be placed in front of them. When, when the work has meaning, like deep meaning, you'll see people, and, and when it's, the work has deep meaning and they're in an environment where we're celebrating one another's strengths and building on each other's strengths, um, you'll have folks ready to run through walls for you. Yeah. Right. You'll have people doing things that, that are above and beyond what anyone could ever expect or, or ask of someone because the outcome is, is so deeply connected um, to who they are and, and what makes them tick that it doesn't matter what the financial target might be. Um, let's say it's more about the work itself. Or if you're, if you're a teacher and this is a thing about teaching and my, my work has really shifted over the last couple of years away from activity based, you know, when I blog, you know, I, I put a bunch of activities up on my blog for teachers and they take these activities and then they, they use them in their lessons. And I'm honored when they do that. But my focus has shifted drastically to what you just described and, and uh, the power of relationships. And, yes. and it's that whole idea of like, Teachers have student learning outcomes that they have to meet. It's about the testing, and and they drive these student learning outcomes down students' throats because they have to, because they're under so much pressure. But when you just look at the power of building relationships, what what you're describing is that they'll go to war for you, and they'll they'll, they'll yeah. bust down walls, and they'll do whatever it takes if you establish that sense of belonging and trust and warmth and encouragement and support. Yeah. So it, it just... I mean, that's, that's bang on. Because imagine that you are, as an educator, you're able to create a space where youth feel valued, respected. They know that their voice matters. And they know that that, that that person at the front of the room really cares about them and is really committed to their best interests. When those things are the case, young people often will overperform Right, they they'll perform because they know you have their best interests at heart. They'll perform because they know that you care about them. They they'll go above. I mean, they may not show up in other classes, but they may show up in yours because what you've done is you've created an environment where where you're saying, "I value you. You're you're important. Yeah, you matter." And the reality is that may be the, for for some of the young people. That may be the only space in their life where they have that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, with some of the work that you do, so, you know, you, the description of, of um, kind of your bio that, that sums up what you do on, on uh, your website. So your website is um, OrlandoBowen.com. That'll That's be correct. on in my show notes. So people will be able to access that. But you, okay. you talk about how you use storytelling fitness yes. activities and cognitive exercises. So I wanted you to share, because again, there'll be a lot of educators listening to this. What are some examples of cognitive exercises that you use with the people that you train, whether it be business or in education? So the, we, the, the cognitive exercises align with the principles or the theme that is being focused on that session. Or, you know, when we're, when we're doing strategic work sessions, it's, like, it's all about how can we move 
folks or this group along a continuum um, towards being their best yeah. in the way that they describe them being able to, to really optimize their performance. <clears throat> so there, there are a number of activities that, that we do that kind of tease out um, some of those things. I'll use one um, with respect to overcoming adversity. Okay. Uh, so what we, what we sometimes do with groups based on their openness uh, to be physically active and engaging is we we'll, we set up an obstacle course and we we have this activity that we do after we've built trust and rapport um, called the sticky truths and uh, in that you know we have people that are sharing some of the, the the things that they feel are holding them back from being their absolute best whether that's things that have happened in their past whether that's um, family challenges like they, you know their father's not in their life never was in their life or they don't have access to resources. We have them write those things down on a uh, on a post-it note or post-it notes, and, um, and they they would also articulate whether or not you know the, uh, the facilitator is, is has the privilege of sharing it with the group. Um, and uh, for the ones that we we are able to share with a group, we you know we talk we talk about it. And so we'll state the challenge. So this individual is going through a situation where their parents are getting a divorce. They, they're living with their mom, but they look like their dad. And the mom has told them repeatedly that she wishes that this particular person would kill themselves. Right. And that, that's a real one. Yeah. And um, so we talk about, you know, what, what can you do? Like, where can you find strength um, in terms of who you surround yourself with? And, and what, are, what are the things that bring you joy and that could strengthen you as you go into those type of environments where you're going to be challenged, where your, your heart is going to be challenged. Yeah. And then we, we would take those post-it notes, put it on, physically put it on the obstacle course and, and run through it. So right. and it has elements of running over things, crawling under things, jumping over things, running through things. Um, and that's, you know, we see life like that, yeah. right? You figure out a strategy. How are we, how are we going to get to the end goal? Yeah. And it's not going to be easy, but we will have people, if they know what you're going through and know what you need, you'll have people that will be your, your cheer, cheerleaders and th- that will encourage and support you a lot along the way. Yeah. Um, when I work with schools and one of the things I always tell schools beforehand, I will interview the administrative team of the school that's bringing me in. And I will say, this is my approach. And if they don't let me bring my approach in, I won't accept the work. And every school has allowed me, has allowed me to bring my approach in, which is everything is so focused on student learning, you know, student learning, student learning, student learning, student learning. And of course, everything is about student learning. But there's the aspect of teacher well-being. So yes. I, I will work, half the work that I do is getting teachers to identify their states of well-being because if they're not in a place of well-being, they cannot be there for the kids, their students, whether it be elementary school or high school. So I will develop that trust and rapport and then I will have, you know, I'll, I'll present the big ideas and on day two or day three of the workshop – We'll have a really honest discussion. And I was in Munich, Germany, running a, a workshop at uh, the Frankfurt International School. 
And the Frankfurt International School was smack dab in the middle of one of the most gorgeous forests I've ever seen. So we went for a walk through the forest and it was a reflective walk. We all met. There was about uh, 20 teachers. And I asked the teachers, I said, okay, I need you to honestly reflect on what's holding you back from being your best. Is it administrative demands placed upon you? Is there too much placed upon you? Or is it you yourself? Is there something within yourself that's not allowing that change? And they were in a place where the majority of the, the teachers admitted that it was their own fears that held them back. It was their own um, biases. It was their own, the pressures they put on themselves and the perceptions that they have of themselves. So that's such an important thing. What you're describing is identifying um, these obstacles and then assessing, is it me or is it external? That, that's, that's, right. Yeah. Yep. And Absolutely, because once you name it, then, then you could deal with it. Right, but it's that naming. What exactly is it that that's holding you back, or is it, you know, is it a story that you're telling yourself, yeah, and and, and placing it somewhere else where where, you know, I I really feel like if we focus on the things that we can control um, as it relates to serving and making a difference, there's always going to be things that we can't control. So I, I try not to spend a whole lot of time, effort, energy, resources worrying about those things but what within our what's in our bailey what's in our circle of influence that we could control to move towards that end goal of empowering and equipping people yeah um i just want to shift here a little bit and just um you know we're going to wrap up in a few minutes but um who who were mentors in your life you know like who continue i think mentorship is critical no matter how far we get or no matter how much success we have, we always have mentors. But I guess early mentors compared to mentors you might have right now, but who are the mentors that have really instilled um, that drive within yourself? I think of my parents um, and, the, and the fact that they, like, they work so hard. Um, and, you know, Andy, they work hard to create opportunities, but with those opportunities come no guarantees. Like I still have to get up and go do what I have to do in order to seize those opportunities. Well, and they never said, you know, you know, all that, that we sacrifice for you. Like they just create the opportunities and, um, and, and encouraged me to really go forward. My uncle Henry, same thing. He, he was the athletic one. Um, passionate about basketball. He taught me about work ethic and about what it takes to really pursue excellence in any space. And, um, you know, so in my formative years, between my, my, my parents, grandparents, my Uncle Henry, uh, they were they modeled a number of different things that now when I reflect upon that time in my life, I realize how, how much of an influence they had. My grandparents were all about service everyone's child in the community was their child yeah right if they had food we didn't even have much and there were times that they went without food to make sure that kids in the community could have food if they needed right and those things were all just some really powerful lessons that they didn't speak about they just did it yeah um so in in those years for sure as i you know was going going through my educational journey 
I've had a number of coaches that have been some very powerful uh, role models um, for me. Coach Rick Treadwell um, was my high school basketball coach. Sam Laux, high school football coach. Um, I've got some of my college uh, football coaches, uh, Coach Smith, Coach Sadler. These guys really, like, you know, they really, really poured in. And, uh, you know, just had some very powerful, to-the-point conversations about what it takes to be the best and to to always give all that you have. And, I, you know, that's one thing I continue to love about sport. Um, all the lessons that, it, that if you've got the right coach and teacher, those lessons could be teased out off the field or court or pool or rink into real life. And, and you're able to see the application of it. Um, outside of sport, I've had, you know, um, other individuals that have seen things in me that I haven't seen in myself. And um, that, that, you know, Tom Stoyan, known, known as Canada's sales coach, he's definitely one. Um, you know, we've got the late uh, Warren Evans, who is like a, was ranked one of the top 25 spe- business speakers in the world consistently. Um, you know, th- these folks saw things in me and would tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, do you know that, and I'm looking at them like, me? I, I, did you, yeah. you know, but, but to have people that are willing, um, that are open uh, to, to not just see things, but also to, to challenge you, to rise to what's possible, to rise up to, to your potential, I just feel like it's been a huge blessing, man. I have just, there have been so many um, individuals, my wife, Sky as an educator, so passionate about her work with young people. Um, it just, she's been a huge blessing, huge, huge blessing in my life. So there's just Michael Pinball Clements when it comes to serving and being all about community. He was the one that I was actually talking on the phone with when I was in Chicago. And I asked him if I would have an opportunity to make a difference in the community. I don't think I could have asked a more community oriented oh, yeah. person. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. that question and and because of that he and i had, had gone out and we still go out and do a number of community things together so there's just i've been really blessed man to 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 have to be surrounded by these types or of individuals or get introduced to folks like yourself as well coach yeah, uh, yeah, you're please. out there you're, you're making a difference man so committed to doing it willing to sacrifice whatever it takes because you're 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 committed to the cause and you see the value and you're called to it and and you know the way that you've been answering that call man is is uh it's inspiring so i'm, I'm yeah. very grateful for for what you're doing you you are one of those that are helping to shape this generation and the next and 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 many more to, to come as well yeah I, I i love the work i do there's no question about it and it really drives me at the at an intrinsic level for sure um, if you had to just sum up here, so the, the last thing I, I put my guests in the hot seat, so I'm going to put you in the hot seat All right. and, um, which I know you can handle, um, and just kind of, uh, your imparting lesson, like what, you know, the educators that are listening to this podcast, what's one last message or lesson that you want to share with them? Awesome. So first of all, to the educators listening, I love you guys. Uh, the work that you do, the difference that you make, you will never, ever realize how much of an impact you're having 
on this planet through what you do. Um, one of the things that that uh, come to mind in terms of that's been fed back uh, to us as we go out and as we do teacher professional development or as we work with young people or corporate folk is the, the significance and power of relationships. And, um, you know, it's about, it's really about making those connections with kids. So finding whatever it is that you can find to, to connect with, a, with someone in your class is huge. Yeah. It could be that they, you know, they visited Spain and you're, and you're from Spain or yes. your grandmother went to Spain. Yes. Or it could be that they're passionate about hockey or cooking or fashion and, and all the, or music, right? right? That's another great connector. So if you, you come in or you have them come into your classroom and you've got some posters or pictures or, or, or anything that, that allows them to see that you are more than just a position, but that you are a person who educates. Yeah. That is huge yeah. for, for young people. Yeah. When, when they, and they see that you care about them, you genuinely care to take the time to say, Hey, so, you know, remember when that time you went to Spain? Amazing. So you're probably on uh, that beach that you were talking about. That's where I'd love to go. You know what allows me that opportunity? Just small things where you bring them into the lesson, yeah. bring them into the narrative. They're like, they look like, man, she, she, he or she was listening, which means I'm important enough. Yeah. He or she is willing to share a part of, of me with the rest of the class. So whatever you could do to create a connection with those young people in your classes, do it. Yeah. Do it because the, the impact that we'll have on, on the classroom dynamics and even classroom management, I mean, I can't even understate the significance of that. So just keep on building relationships by being authentically who you are and seeking, being relentless in seeking opportunities to make connections in the, in the classroom. Yeah, and Orlando, what you're saying here, I mean, this is, this is great timing because a couple months ago, I, I was listening to um, a podcast, and, and it talked about a research project. And why I'm telling it is that it completely connects to what you just said. And it was done by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And there was a researcher, um, I put it on my blog a while back, but there was a researcher who went into a school, I think in New York, and it was a rough school. And it's, mind you, it's just one study at this point, but it's being replicated. So this guy brings in a research team. Um, to a grade nine level, uh, to the whole grade nine level. So let's say there's 325 students and 25 teachers at that grade level. So the research team gave these get to know you surveys to all of the grade nine students and all of the teachers. So they all filled out these surveys and then they gave the surveys back to the research team. The research team then broke the 375 like, teachers and students combined into four control groups. The first control group was they gave no feedback whatsoever about the surveys to either teachers or students. Yeah. Second group, they gave feedback to only the students. Third group, they gave feedback to only the teachers. And the fourth group, they gave feedback about the surveys to both teachers and students. And, and the feedback was 
the similarities. This is how you're similar to one another. So they had Mm. dissected it and deconstructed it, and they found every possible connection between teacher and student. And the result was that that fourth group that received feedback, teachers and students, the grade point average increased (laughs) by 30% or something. So they they were able to, to, based on this one study, to show that while connection really does matter, and what they found was that it mattered more to disadvantaged youth. Mm-hmm. So the Hispanics and Blacks were the ones that that um, that had the the greatest impact from from knowing this, but mm-hmm. also the, the the teachers. So at the end of the research project, they said to the students, and the research team was surprised because they said to the students, "So did knowing these connections really like?" matter to you or how did you feel and the students were like oh well yeah it was kind of cool but you know whatever but to the teachers it really mattered so just mm-hmm. knowing that connection softened their body language up softened yeah. their tone up and they it mattered m- more to the teachers but it still mattered to the students but it goes to show you the power of connection so this study is being replicated across loads of schools in the US right now and different you know different um types of schools so there's evidence there to that's support amazing. to support what you're saying so that's amazing yeah so and I, I i yeah go ahead no i i was just saying that i could imagine that as an educator, if you're standing at the front of the room and you're seeing yourself reflected in the classroom in whatever way, right? You're seeing that, oh, I'm connected with this person because of this uh, topic or I'm connected with this person because of the music that we listen to or whatever it is. Um, You're more likely to be able to make that can that nonverbal connection with those students as well and it shows like if you really care about someone and it's easier to care care about people that you know trust right that you know and trust if if that shows up in the classroom then then the students are going to be more receptive to learn yeah right because you're showing that that you uh that you actually you value them yeah and care and i think that that's awesome yeah i think that's at the conscious and subconscious level Mm -hmm. right because everything subconsciously your your body's going to relax into that experience a little more so um so i want to thank you my man for uh taking the time um i think that you shared a lot of valuable things here that um many educators will will really uh embrace so um, just stay on the line, Orlando. I'm just going to uh, stop the recording. But I want to thank everybody okay. for listening to this podcast with Orlando Bowen. And uh, I'll have all of his information. He's on Twitter, at Orlando Bowen, correct? That's correct. Yeah, and um, I'll have his um, website and social media links and uh, everything in the show notes of today's episode. So thanks, everybody, and I hope you come back and uh, listen to future podcasts. for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.